Welcome to the Transform Podcast. I'm Andrew Farhat. I'm here with my guest, PJ Arsvald. Uh, PJ is our Renewal Church campus pastor out in the highlands of Denver. If you want to check out Renewal Church, just go to renewaldenver.org and you will see a very gifted preacher as well as a very vibrant, awesome uh, church community. Um, today we're continuing our uh, study on comparative religions. Uh, we've covered Islam um, as well as the last week there was a covering of Hinduism and Buddhism. Jackson filled in very well for me. He's our videographer. Um, so good job, Jackson Lowry. And then today we're going to continue this uh, comparative religious study with a couple of groups that may have knocked on your door recently. They are the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. So we're going to cover the Jehovah's Witnesses first. Sound good? Um, so, PJ, what's the big thing about Jehovah? If you yeah. have ever come across um, a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to say there's only one name for God. His name is Jehovah. That is their strong argument. And I guess I would just say, PJ, where does this thought process come from? Yeah, well, here's where I'm going to try not to get too much in the weeds. Um, but yeah, obviously it's in the name Jehovah. You hear it all the time, Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Where does this come from? Because if you're a part of a Catholic church, a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, you probably don't hear that name a lot. So it's kind of like if, if a group's coming to be Christian, why do they have a different name for God than everybody else does? Uh, and really what it stems from is a language thing. So in ancient Hebrew, um, they did not write vowels. Um, so it was just written, and this is actually modern Hebrew too. They'd have just consonants. So it'd be equivalent of like a, you know, what we'd call like an M, a P and a T sound. But it was just known based off the form and how it was used what vowels to insert. So you might add like kind of an O vowel and then an E vowel and you just knew looking at it, that's how you do it. So you didn't write out the vowels. Um, later, uh, scribes would add little markings above and below the consonants to indicate what kind of vowels to use. And then you had the name of God, which most Christians would take in the Old Testament to be Yahweh. So you have kind of this Y or J sound, um, a VW sound and then an H sound. So Yahweh. Um, and so when you look at this name, um, originally it didn't have any vowel markings. Um, eventually it did get vowel markings. But one of the challenges about ancient Jewish people is that um, they'd never wanted to say the name Yahweh out loud. Eventually this tradition grew where they didn't want to say the name uh, because the Ten Commandments say you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What's well, one of the best ways to make sure you don't misuse the name? Don't say it. You don't want to mispronounce it. You don't want to say it in a bad context. And so what they did is they used vowel markings for another word, um, the word that means the Lord, it's Adonai. And so they would put these vowel markings from the Lord and put them on the name Yahweh. And that was a reminder that when they were reading, they get to that word and they would remember, don't say Yahweh because we don't want to misuse that name. So say Adonai, the Lord. Now, if you take the vowels from Adonai and the consonants from Yahweh, you get Yehovah, Jehovah. Okay. And so that's where the name comes from. And... and to their credit, I mean, they're, even in our Lutheran tradition, some of our hymns occasionally have the name Jehovah show up. Um, again, we've spent years, decades, centuries learning kind of Jewish scribal culture and stuff. And so at times we've used that name. It's not like it's crazy or erroneous. Um, but most scholars who study Hebrew would say that it was most likely pronounced Yahweh. Um, that's kind of the name given to God in the Old Testament. That's the name that he reveals as himself. Um, so... To assert that Jehovah is the one name, you have to say that, um, is probably off base. Um, but you can also kind of see the logic how it got there. 
Okay, that's very interesting. So essentially what you are saying is they took Adonai, they took the vowels from Adonai, which is another name for God in the Old Testament, yep. and then they put that onto Yahweh, which, which are the consonants in the Hebrew, mm -hmm. and that can't, that's how you get Jehovah. Exactly. So I guess my first thought or reaction to this as I, we dialogue about this, you know, this morning is, okay, well then, isn't Adonai one of the names too then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I guess it's a name, it's also the, the title. So this is where if you look at your Bible, whatever translation, if you probably have a Bible that has um, the Lord in the Old Testament, and it, what you'll notice is it's a capital L and then it's small cap. So it's kind of a capital O-R-D, but it's the size of a lowercase. Um, so that was kind of their way of replacing it. So the Lord does serve as a certain name, um, but maybe not the personal name. So kind of like somebody might go to you, Andrew, and call you pastor. Um, and that is an appropriate way to call you, um, but you also are named Andrew. So in some ways they took the vowels of pastor and the consonants of Andrew and kind of combined it. Um, and again, they, they weren't the only tradition. Other people kind of came upon this too. Um, but there is an emphasis then they would really say, you have to call him Andrew because that's his, his real name. Don't call him pastor. Or if you do, it's more of a title. Don't you know treat that as a name. Okay, very interesting. With that said, the original name is still Yahweh. Yeah, right. that's how we, you know. So the original name for the for God is Yahweh. Sounds like they took the, like you said, the vowels of Adonai and put it onto Yahweh, and they came up with Jehovah. So Jehovah, with that said, is one of many uh, names for God in the Old Testament. So when one reads the Old Testament. Um, my goodness, there's going to be a lot there yeah. in terms of different titles or descriptions for the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah God. I mean, there's a lot there. And so, um, so very educational how they got there. Yeah. But I guess, um, you know, I think when you, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think what you see is that... God really is interested in those who worship Him, who have a relationship with Him, who know Him and obey His commandments. And so um, if, if, if there's going to be like one group that gets legalistic about one way to get to the name Jehovah, <laughs> I think they're kind of missing the, the God who is calling people to a relationship with Himself. That's yeah. going to be way deeper than getting legalistic about this Jehovah name thing. pronunciation. Yeah. yeah, would you? What would you be your thought to that? No, I think you're definitely right. We'll talk about Jesus later. I think that's the biggest issue when you start to tout the name Jehovah. We're going to talk about the role of Jesus, which becomes absent in that conversation because Jehovah becomes everything, um, and he certainly that's important. But I think you're 100 percent right. There's a legalism, probably the similar legalism that stopped people from saying the name Yahweh in the first place. You know, yeah. we don't want to misspeak the name of the Lord, and so what ends up happening is you don't say God's name, the one that he revealed, um, because you're so worried about saying it wrong. And yeah. um, ultimately, you know, you could see it as a law. And in some ways you do want to honor God's name, but it's also an invitation that God mm -hmm. actually would reveal himself yeah. by name. You know, you think of how many traditions just kind of think like, oh, there's probably a supreme being, but we can't know him. He's nameless. He's voiceless. It's like, no, we have a real God who speaks and actually said, hey, here's my name, yeah. Yahweh. And here's okay. my son. Jesus. And uh, right. it's kind of beautiful that there's that intimacy and it's an invitation more than a legalism kind of thing. Right. Okay. So as followers of Christ, uh, if you're listening and you're a Christian, 
uh, you are comfortable with the name Jehovah, but with that said, it is you're educating on how we got there, yeah. but it is not the only name for God that we do see in the Old Testament. Correct, yeah. Um, and then with that said, I think we should talk about uh, the translators of the New World Translation. So whenever we talk about uh, the Bible, what we're talking about is what's called revelation. So every religion has an understanding of where revelation from God comes from, where things have been revealed, who God spoke to. Um, and so in 1947, PJ, uh, they put together what's called the New World Translation. And so this is the Bible for Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't accept any other translation, is my understanding. Now, I think what's interesting, though, as I research this, I want, I want to just point this out to our listeners. It says that the committee, this is the committee of the New World Translation. They requested that the Watchtower Society not publish the names of its members, they stated that they wanted, quote, adver they did not want to, quote, advertise themselves, but let all the glory go to the author of the scriptures, God, end quote. Um, and then in addition, the publishers believe that, quote, the particulars of the New World Bible Translation Committee's members, university or other educational training are not the important thing and that the translation testifies to their qualification. So, so like right off of the bat, this is a different approach than historical translation committees. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, for example, the English Standard Version, which is what many uh, Protestant Christians uh, read publicly in their worship services today, uh, the English Standard Version has 14 oversight committee members, 50 review scholars, 54 members on their advisory council. And these are all reputable scholars with their credentials and their names. Um, now, what I think is astonishing is they're like, oh, well, we don't want to tell you who's on our translation committee. Yeah. But we think you should just trust us. And then in addition, I want to point this out. This is very interesting. It says, former high-ranking Watchtower staff have claimed knowledge of the translator's identities. Walter Martin identified Nathan Knorr, Frederick Franz, Albert Schrader, George Genghis, and Milton Henschel as members of the translation team, writing of them, the New World Bible Translation Committee had no known translators with recognized degrees in Greek or Hebrew, exegesis or translation. None of these men had any university education except Franz, who left school after two years, never completing even an undergraduate degree. So, PJ, Franz has about as much work in the original languages as you and I, and you've probably had more, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, yes, I, I wasn't there at his schooling, so maybe you covered right. it. But yeah, yeah, I think, you know, it's a really good point of just, this is the place for academic scholarship and, and knowledge. You know, Christianity in a lot of ways can be very simple, you know, childlike faith, trusting the Lord. Um, but it's also a good reminder that God has given us people and scholars and leaders who are knowledgeable, who learn, who can um, do all these things. And so one of the great gifts we have are there's people who have studied the context of the scriptures and stuff and the language so they can bring us a translation that takes these words that were written 2,000 years ago or longer, um, written in a different language, and bring them into our vocabulary so we can understand what God is saying. Um, and it is troubling when you kind of say, you know, we don't want to tell you who 
translated this and I realize they're saying, you know, we want to give God the glory and um, I respect that, but it does call into question, translation is, is an important thing. A choice on any given word can greatly shape one's understanding of what the scriptures are saying. And like you talked about the, the ESV, English Standard Version, I mean, there's so many layers to making sure that there's transparency, making sure we know what's being said. Um, we talked about before, if there's a disagreement in the committee, they'll say that. They'll say, you know what, we could have gone one of two ways. We went with this way, but we want you to know that this was an option. Like, mm -hmm. we want you to be fully informed. And so um, having people who don't know the languages, um, you're kind of left to just take what other translations have said and kind of just make guesses, interpretations based off your own viewpoint. Um, and, and so it really does call into question the credentials of, of a translation like this when you don't have people who know the languages making translation decisions. Yeah, and uh, there's actually uh, probably about, I think, eight years ago, there were some Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my home. Hmm. Um, and I'll talk more about this later in the podcast as well. But I think the, the, the spot that we left it at was this point. And I printed out all of the names and credentials of the translators of the English Standard Version. And I said, who was responsible for the translation of the New World Translation? And they said, we're not gonna go there with you. And then I said, here is the list yeah. for the English, English Standard Version. And it was just like crickets. <laughs> and then they left. <laughs> that was like the last thing. Uh, but it's like, okay, Frederick Franz, who was then representing the translation committee and later serving as the Watchtower Society's fourth president, he admitted under oath that he could not translate Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 from the Hebrew. The latter admission came after Franz had stated under oath that he was familiar with not only Hebrew, but with Greek, Latin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and French for the purpose of biblical translation. Mm. But a lot of those languages are not needed for biblical translation from the original languages. Yeah, right, I'm not PJ? sure beyond <laughs> Greek, Hebrew, and maybe Latin. I don't know where Portuguese comes in. Okay, so so if you're a Christian, this is something that can uh, educate you about this. If you're just seeking and investigating, hey, what uh, faith you want to land on, we want you to be aware of this. This is something you should know. Um, okay, PJ, who is Jesus? Um, <laughs> this is, if you, if you want to go to a really strong place mm -hmm. with Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe this is a really strong place to go. Um, and then do you want to just get the Bible rolling or get the ball rolling rather yeah. on who Jesus is to Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, um, I think that's, this is one of the areas where, as we'll see with these groups, a lot of times Jehovah's Witnesses will call themselves Christians and most other Christian denominations say, yeah, you know, it's this is one of the hangout points because they would identify as Christian, but there's a fundamental difference in understanding of who Christ is. And so in a Jehovah's Witnesses understanding, Jesus is not one of three persons of the Holy Trinity. He's not God from all eternity. Um, take anything from the Nicene Creed if you're familiar with it. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Um, that doesn't apply to Jesus in a Jehovah's Witnesses account. So he is um, subordinate. He is the one who brings reconciliation. Um, but he is not God with capital G. Okay, so followers of Christ since the first century, and there's 
plenty of documentation with the church fathers yeah. to demonstrate that the earliest Christian belief in God is that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is divine, that He is equal to God, but that He is also fully man as well. Um, there was a pastor who disputed this in the 4th century named Arius, mm -hmm. uh, but then he was refuted by a champion of our faith called Athanasius. Yep. Um, and then that's where we came up with, or that's where the church rather formulated a statement of faith called the Nicene Creed that came out of the Council of Nic Nicaea in 325 AD. Yep. That was the first council to really hit that question. So then, um, so like all of this is already settled uh, by the church a long time ago. But then I want to just share with you, they have some beliefs that no one's ever believed about Jesus. So let's, let's just go over it. And this is, by the way, this is all textbook stuff. This is not uh, us getting on Wikipedia or something. This is textbook, all right? Jesus has undergone three phases of existence, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. He was an angel or God, lowercase g, the archangel Michael. Now this is uh, the archangel Michael who does appear in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the angels. That's a high-ranking high angel. Yep. If you're new, an angel is uh, a spirit that doesn't have a body. And, and it's, the angels are ministering spirits that are uh, helping you inherit your salvation, according to Hebrews chapter 2. So his second phase of existence is that he became man. Then he became a God spirit. And now he's the archangel Michael again. So, I guess my first reaction, PJ, is like this reminds me of Mohammed a little bit. Hmm. Like hundreds of years later, you get to just make up an identity yeah. for a historical figure. And you are centuries now removed from this historical figure. And you just get to make it up. Yeah. But there are no eyewitnesses or no early sources that ever heard Jesus claiming to be Michael. Yeah. And there's no, there's not even any early cults that thought he was the Archangel Michael. So like even the early cults like Gnostics and Docetists who had some very strange beliefs that were never, uh, that did not last very long. They didn't even call him Michael. No. So I guess that's my first reaction. So like, and again, earlier in the podcast, you made a really good point. We can have, we can use our reason with this. We can use our sensibilities with this and say, I want early sources. I want mm -hmm. eyewitnesses. I want documentation. Yeah. Okay. Because I have a brain. <laughs> okay. So my, my point, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, <laughs> but my PJ, help us out here. How, do, how does this work? Yeah. Well, I, I think you hit on a lot of really good things. And this really gets at the importance of um, having an understanding of church tradition Tradition, again, gets a lot of bad rap, and it can go really wrong, right? We're, we are products of the uh, Protestant Reformation, and so we understand how tradition can veer off. Um, but like what you just said, um, we believe that the Christian faith is one that is based on historical events and transmitted through history. And so what you find with this kind of account is you have the historical event of Jesus, and then you have kind of this big gap, and then you have, all right, now we actually figured it out. We, you know... The church has been wrong all this time, or those who really understood, nobody knows where they were. Um, 
and understanding that like, a lot of these questions the church had sorted out. And like you said, like this idea of Michael um, seems to kind of pop up out of nowhere. And the Jehovah's Witnesses will claim, you know, we are what you would get if you read the Bible without all of your traditional presuppositions. Um, and, you know, and there's verses that they'll pull. And, and again, verses where if you just look at that verse out of its context or kind of what's being said, you can kind of see it. Um, but Christianity is by definition a tradition, if you understand tradition being something transmitted generation to generation, passed on. And so it's crucial that we look back. And it's not that anyone in the past automatically is right, but that they get a voice. Um, like uh, G.K. Chesterton says that church tradition is democracy of the dead. He says it gives a vote to the least or the most obscure people of all, those who happen to be dead. <laughs> and um, looking back and saying, you know, the church answered things about Jesus' divinity. They wrestled with it, but they came to a, a pretty universal claim. No, he is truly divine. Um, and what you said about Michael too made me think of when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, who do the people think I am? You know, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet, some say Elijah. He says, but who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he said, and Jesus is basically like, yep. And on this confession, boom, this is where the whole faith is going to be built on. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of misunderstandings of who Jesus is, but being the Savior, the Messiah, and He is God's true Son. Jesus Himself says that's that's it. PJ just quoted from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, around there. If you want to look at it, that is an eyewitness of Jesus saying who He is. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's like I, I want to know what who Jesus said He was, and then I want to know what people have believed since the beginning of this. Right. So, mm -hmm. so again, like, let's just talk about this. Are we comfortable believing stuff that just somebody makes up in the 20th <laughs> century that no one's ever believed before? I think just as a thinking about our God and revealing himself to humanity, a God who's doesn't discriminate, like he's for everybody that's lived on this earth. Yeah. He's not just for the 20th century people that got this cool idea. Yeah. But he's for everyone. He's for all nations. And I don't want to believe new things. Yeah. I want to believe old things, PJ. Yeah, the stuff that's baked in from the beginning. This is a little flippant, but I have a mentor who once said, <laughs> if you're reading the Bible and you ever have an idea that nobody's ever had before, have a drink, go to bed, and then wake up and try again tomorrow. <laughs> this whole point was like, if you're making up new stuff, it's probably not true. Like That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. Um, so, if... A Jehovah's Witness comes to your door. You can say you're not interested if you want. But if you want to take them on in a debate, <laughs> here's some tips. And I'll just share with you um, an experience I had with Jehovah's Witnesses a while back when I was living in Oregon. And I let them in. And what you can expect is that if you know your stuff, they're going to go get like a bishop or somebody higher ranked and mm. come back. So you just have to be prepared if you have the time for that and you want to see how well you, you can debate and go for it, go ahead. Uh, but nevertheless, what you want to do is focus on the actions of Jesus and not the Trinity. So if you start to get lost in the Trinity, you're just probably not going to get too far. But if you focus on the actions of Jesus, such as the fact that he forgave sin, that's something only Jehovah can do. Mm -hmm. The fact that he received worship, only Jehovah can receive worship in all the Bibles, including the New World Translation. 
And so I, I, I went down this road and I said, hey guys, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 2 with me. It says here that Jesus received worship when the Magi visited him. What do you guys make of that? And then they just said, you know what? The Magi didn't really know what they were doing. They're from all these different countries and whatever. And I said, but it still says they worshiped him. And then they said, well, that word can mean to honor somebody. But actually, it's the Greek word proskuneo. You're familiar with this word. It means to worship. So I said, hey, let's check out Matt, or rather John chapter 9. This is the story of the man that is born blind mm -hmm. that Jesus heals. And then I said, hey, let's read verse 38 in chapter 9. And it says that Jesus, or rather the blind man was healed and he worshiped Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, in our Bible, it says that he did obeisance to Jesus, which is a word that means to pay homage to. Yeah. But then here's something to note. They caught this in 1974, so they changed it to obeisance. But then prior to that, it actually did say that he worshipped Jesus as Jehovah. Yeah. So um, that was kind of like an awkward moment between us. <laughs> But then the, the meeting concluded with this, PJ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then I said, hey, let's look up Isaiah 45, 23 to see what it says about Jehovah. And then we read this together. <clears throat> To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Mm. And then they said, Paul didn't know he was quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. He, he wasn't quoting from that. Yeah. So my response was this, PJ. Paul is known to have like memorized the Old Testament, and he was blameless. And you all have this in the New World Translation, too. You, <laughs> this, you didn't mess with this part. Yeah, this is in yours as well. So... How, what do you guys make of this? And uh, they just said, well, he didn't know he was quoting from it. Yeah. And then they kind of left after I showed them the list of the ESV scholars. And yeah. they didn't come back. <laughs> they were. I remember this. He's they not were, worth our time. They yeah. were, well, here's what happened. They were walking away. And then they go, we might come back. And I go, it's up to you if you want. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome so, to, yeah. So anyway, that's how it ended. Any thoughts on how to respond to Jehovah's Witnesses if they do come knocking on your door? Or you see them at the park and they're like... Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, again, like you said, it's one of those where if you're willing to have the conversation, like, good, like, you know, it's great. You know, maybe you can open some eyes. Um, they're coming in with an agenda, and so you just got to yeah. be aware that their goal is to... Um, Try and change your mind, which, you know, is fair. Um, they're going to come in with their verses that's going to show Jesus humbling himself in obedience to his father and try and say, well, look at, he's not quite with the father. And um, so it's just be aware that they're going to, that that's a game plan. But I think you highlighted the good things like, look at who Jesus is, what he did, what he yeah. said, um, because they have such a different view of Jesus um, that that's really the, the crux of the, I mean, so much of what's going on is, 
who is Jesus? Because if you don't have Jesus right, then obviously the Trinity is not going to make sense and all of these other things and how you interpret Old Testament and New Testament are going to be taken so differently. So um, talk about Jesus, witness to him. And I love that Philippian passage um, that you brought up. It is really cool how, you know, talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, there's such an emphasis on the name Jehovah. Um, again, we, we believe that the, the original Hebrew would have said, you know, been pronounced Yahweh. But it's kind of amazing that um, the Jewish people who believed in Yahweh, worshipped him, they stopped saying his name out of respect. Um, and it kind of created this void that all of a sudden there is no divine name being spoken. Um, it's being written but not spoken anymore. And then all of a sudden you have Jesus show up who is God in flesh, right? The, the, very, the image of the invisible God, as Colossians says. And all of a sudden you have this name that now this is the name to which every knee bows, Jesus. And so, um, I mean, that's the crux of everything is who is this guy? And we come to with every faith, who is Jesus? And mm-hmm. so much hinges on that. And like you said, understanding what scriptures say, who Jesus says he is, the eyewitnesses, understanding how people understood Jesus right away. Like this, again, people spent discussions, they figure this out um, and to all of a sudden say, no, everyone was wrong. Now we've got it right. Um, I think is, is a little reckless. And so just, if people show up, you, it's up to you. Sure. Welcome into your house. Have a conversation. If you have questions, you can come talk to us. If you're like, well, they brought up some good points, you know, we're here for you too, just like their bishop's there for them. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know if I have any like silver bullet, but I think those are some good things to think about. Very good. And then also, PJ, um, I think we should talk about this. There's been some prophecies that have been made yeah. by the founders of Jehovah's Witnesses. Russell and Rutherford are mm-hmm. the founders, by the way. So, PJ, when did they predict Jesus would return to this earth and set up his millennial kingdom? Yeah, so they actually, um, you have um, Russell first. His full name is, uh, here, I have it underlined. Oh, Charles Taze Russell. Yep. And so he's kind of, um, he's an offshoot of the Adventist movement. Um, we can talk about that another time. But um, so he's kind of the, the OG Jehovah's Witness. They weren't called that at the time, but he starts this, publication called the watchtower and has all these uh, predictions and and interpretations Um, he's been studying the bible and has these ideas and says the church has been wrong all this time and so um, he actually believed that jesus is he had actually kind of returned in this invisible presence in 1874 um, so that jesus has already come invisibly and we're kind of this new reign and that in 1914 jesus would turn return physically and so um, he's teaching all this stuff and you know the late 1800s and stuff and they have a year on the calendar saying, um, it's kind of like when 2012 hit and everyone said the Mayan calendar is ending in 2012, December, whatever date, the whole world's going to end. They had this date kind of circled, 1914. Um, so when Jesus is going to return, it's going to happen. And then um, lo and behold, 1914 comes and passes though, and the world's still still turning. Oh my goodness. Okay. So then on top of this, didn't they originally think World War One was the Battle of Armageddon? Yeah, which actually, okay. I mean, you kind of see if you thought 1914 was like the end of the world. Makes sense. And then a world war breaks <laughs> out. You're kind of like, oh my gosh, here it's coming. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the yeah. allies beat the axes and then. Okay. Armageddon is yeah. mentioned in the book of Revelation. Yep. Right, PJ. So they're trying to put these things together. Yeah. Predict the end. And then I have this that they changed it to 1945, but then it didn't happen in 1945. So then they changed to not predicting any dates. Yeah. All right. 
So I guess right off the bat, I'd say this. There were some serious um, things that could happen to people in the Old Testament yeah. if they made false prophecies like this, right? Yeah. So you're, you're leading a group of people. You're leading them and you're saying, this is going to happen. The end of time is going to happen on this day and time. God told me. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't. It's like in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, which was a theocratic nation. Yep. You could get the death penalty for that. Yeah. Because you're leading a whole group of people to be deceived. They could change everything in their schedules and orient their lives around this, which people did do. Yeah. Um, And then it doesn't happen. So I guess I just think, PJ, how do these movements survive? This such bad PR. This is bad PR, man. Yeah, it's a really good question. You think about, I, I can't remember if it's Deuteronomy 18 or 19, but there's this prophecy of a, a prophet like Moses, and the sign you know that they'll be true is if what they say comes to fruition. Now, ultimately, the one final true prophet we find is Jesus, who predicts his death and resurrection, and then it happens. And so um, that's really what we see. But but it, the whole point being like, you can tell a prophet by, you know, does what he says come true? Oh, cool. He, he was legit. He, yeah. he actually had a word from God. And so um, how it survived, I, I'll admit I haven't looked into a ton of like how they kind of in the immediate aftermath process these. Um, obviously, Jesus himself um, in the New Testament warns about trying to predict nobody will know the day or hour. Nobody. Matthew you know? 25. Yeah. It's right. going to come in like a thief in the night. You're not going to know it's coming. And so that there's an urgency to be alert because it could happen at any point. But it's pretty clear warning. Don't try and predict this because you're not going to know. And so yeah. the fact that they, they made these predictions didn't turn out. Seems like a pretty big condemnation, but I guess enough people believed in the overall movement, some of the other teachings that they, they rode with it. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I, I think about the DNA of religions. When yeah. I think DNA, I think of founders, scriptures, basic principles, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And so I think as we've gone through this comparative religious study, what we're seeing is that there's some there's some not so healthy DNA here yeah. in the origins of these movements. And this is one of them. Because if I am living in 1914 and these guys said Jesus is coming and he doesn't, I'm like, all right, I'm done with you guys. I'm out. Yeah. I, I can't trust you anymore. I'm, I can't change my schedule for Jesus this, to come yeah. back and he didn't. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Last thing, PJ, on Jehovah's Witnesses. We just wanted to cover some of those miscellaneous beliefs to yeah. be aware of. Uh, one of which is no blood transfusions. Okay, so how, where do they get that from? And then what would be a Christian's response to that? Yeah, um, this is one of the things um, people who don't know Jehovah's Witnesses Super Bowl might know this one. This is a pretty public one. Um, but basically in Leviticus 3 verse 7, um, there is this warning from God and a command for the people of Israel not to consume meat with its blood still in it. So you should drain the blood before you eat. And it's part of this sign of God's people. It's part of what sets them apart, um, similar to a lot of their dietary laws, similar to, you know, things like circumcision. This is part of what it means to be God's people. But this time, don't consume blood. And so the way that Jehovah's Witnesses have interpreted that is um, if you take somebody else's blood and you put it in your own veins, that is a certain act of consuming blood that is not your own. Um, And so they hold fast to you don't take blood transfusions. And this has been a public thing because there's been times where um, a Jehovah's Witness member and maybe even a child um, needs a blood transfusion to try and save their life or help them. And um, 
I guess to their credit, they've stuck to their religious convictions. Um, but obviously at times that's cost people lives and cost people um, at least health because this refusal, refusal of medical treatment um, that we would view very differently. Um, this is where, again, where you understand Jesus plays in a ton. How you understand Jesus's role with the Old Testament, the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, um, the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. Um, we take that law to be a, a certain civil and ceremonial law for God's people at the time that is no longer binding, similar to the dietary laws that Jesus you know, declares all food to be clean. Um, we have a, a, a Christ-centered interpretation and fulfillment of some of those laws where we're no longer bound by Leviticus 3, verse 7. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're just looking at the Bible, you're going to read, don't consume blood. I guess I can't put blood in my body. That's kind of where that stems from. Yeah, I see. So what we have is uh, the God of the Old Testament. He's establishing his holiness. So there's all of these details. Yeah. There's more than just stuff about blood. Yeah. Leviticus is filled with restrictions, right? All sorts of things, yeah. Yeah, so then Jesus comes on the scene and says, okay, I'm making all things new now. And that's what he said, and that's what the first century sources say. So, you know, it's like, it's striking to me how they just picked the blood transfusions. Yeah. And then it's at the expense of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So there's been people that have died over this. So I think that's concerning to me yeah uh, and then finally pj what's up with the 144,000? yeah so if you read revelation um you have this uh prophecy about um in revelation 7 4 you're gonna have this 144,000. there's gonna be 12,000 from all 12 tribes of israel so think of the original people of israel you have 12 tribes um the levites um the benjaminites judites all of them and so there's this prophecy and the number is 144,000 um, that will be gathered now, we take that as kind of a sign of completeness, 12 being a holy number. So you have 12,000 times 12. It's this beautiful number. Mm-hmm. Um, but they take that very literally. And so they believe that there are 144,000 anointed um, that are kind of co-rulers. So the last day when, you know, the new heavens and new earth are established, there's going to be this special class of anointed people who will kind of rule with God over this new creation. So you can be a believer and follower of Jehovah and be saved. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're in a kind of this upper tier of co-ruling. Um, and so um, I do believe that there have been some people who have come forward and said, God revealed to me I'm one of the anointed. I don't know how many of those chairs have been claimed. I don't know how many will be claimed. Um, but that's one of their more peculiar teachings as opposed to others who would say, you know, that number is a figurative. God is trying to say something differently there, trying to say something about the beauty and the completeness, the holiness of what's going on. Um, but they take it to be very literal and say, all right, this is how many co-rulers there are. Um, kind of, yeah, special seats at the table um, for followers of Jehovah. Okay, so this is all coming from the book of Revelation, yeah, which they've really taken a lot from. Mm-hmm. And then the book of Revelation is what's called apocalyptic genre. Yeah. So it's different than any other New Testament book. There, There's a lot of symbolism because yes. it's apocalyptic. I mean, that's where we get the four horsemen, right? Yeah. So everybody has a a symbolic understanding of the four horsemen, whether they're sacred or secular. Um, And so the 144,000 shows up, I believe it's in Revelation chapter seven. Mm -hmm. So my question would be, if they're taking that that literally, are they also going to take literally the fact that the 144,000 are descendants from the 12 tribes of Israel? So a lot of these people are not Jewish. They're not descendants of Israel. Yeah. Number two, Revelation 14.5, again, this is very symbolic and apocalyptic, 
the 144,000 are depicted as male virgins. And some of these anointed people are female. Some of these appointed uh, people today with the Jehovah's Witness group are not male virgins. So I guess my, my point is uh, I'm concerned that they're taking some things literally here, but not others. If you got to stay consistent, if that's your hermeneutic, <laughs> yeah, you got to be consistent the whole way. Yeah. I mean, that's where Revelation, it's, there's so much, like you said, imagery and symbolism that you really got to be careful. And like you said, it can be easy to grab one detail, one piece of information and just hold that up and say like, look, it's right here in the Bible, but there's a whole lot going on there. And so you got to be careful because like you just said, you kind of run into the trap of like, if you're going to grab that detail, then everything about the 144,000 you got to be consistent on. And, um, and at least it should give you pause and say, all right, if we're not taking that part of it, are we interpreting the first part right? And what is this actually trying to say? Because um, it might not be just a literal depiction. Like you said, apocalyptic literature is not known for being just a dry history of how things are going to be, but rather this kind of symbolic, it's supposed to evoke emotion and, and capture ideas. And so, um, yeah, you're 100% right on that. Yeah. So if you're listening and you are just considering all of this, uh, I think, you know, we still have Mormonism to cover. But as I ponder all of the evidence, and you just look at more, uh, more, or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Islam, etc., you look at everything, and it's like, man, God has really made himself clear in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, historically, uh, the evidence is there. Um, it, it's all there for us. And so when I look at all these other religions and how they started and the DNA, um, I'm not seeing a candle lit next to Jesus Christ at all here. And so if you are considering all this and you're on the fence, we would encourage you to keep on considering the claims of Jesus, that he claimed to be the Son of God who came into the world to give you new life today, everlasting life in the future, um, and that he loves you and he died for you and he rose for you. Um, if you would like to submit a question at hello at sjdenver.org, we would love to um, answer your question on this podcast. And we hope that this has been educational to you so that you are educated on the different beliefs that are out there and how they came to be. We'll see you next time.